0: Hey everybody, welcome to MuseoPunks, a monthly podcast that investigates uh, interactivity, innovation, experimentation in the museum sector. My name's Jeffrey Insko, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Suze Cans. Hey, Suze.
1: Hey, how are you doing, Jeffrey?
0: I'm doing all right. How are you?
1: I am pretty good. I'm feeling very excited about our, our new podcast. This yeah. is a really great project.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, so uh, I suppose we should probably clue listeners into uh, you know who we are and why we're doing this. So, um, ladies first, I'd like, uh, to give the floor to you and, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Um, well, obviously my name is Suze and you can probably tell by the accent that I am from Australia. Um, I am a bit of a museum geek. I fell into the sector a few years ago after coming across Seb Chan's Fresh and New blog and I started pestering my local art gallery who didn't have um a website at that point to to get online this was many years ago and I had no context of the sort of scale of work that they could be doing as a small institution um but it started that that sort of series of events started a bit of an obsession with this because I find these issues of museums and technology um hugely fascinating I've been blogging. I keep coming to conferences on the other side of the world, like Museums in the Web and the Museum Computer Network conference. And now I guess we get to explore some of these questions via podcast as well. I'm really excited about doing this myself because I think the things that you can get to in a blog, like on mine, which is the Museum Geek blog, um, are completely different from those you can get to in a conversation.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know this. This medium certainly offers a chance to really get deeper um, in, in, as you said, a conversation with people who are uh, doing interesting work in, in the field, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, w- every episode we'll we'll talk with with people who uh, we think are doing amazing things. Um,
1: but before we do that, you need to introduce yourself, Jeffrey. Oh,
0: yeah, definitely. Um, so, yes, uh, my name is Jeffrey and I am... Based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, USA, um, and I currently uh, I head up technology initiatives for the Carnegie Museum of Art, um, and but I first got involved with museums uh, several years ago um, at a at a wonderful institution called the Mattress Factory here in town. It's a very small um, museum of uh, installation art, and um, it was. It was maybe circa 2006, 2007, just when kind of social media was, was starting to appear on the scene and people were kind of, um, not, not knowing what it was, what to do with it. Um, and the mattress factory is very experimental. And so they encouraged me to experiment with, with these new platforms, which I did, um, and, and made some really interesting projects and projects that, um, I, I, I'm really proud of to this day. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, kind of got, kind of got burned out a little bit and left for g- greener pastures that really weren't green and, uh, <laughs> realized that I totally missed working in the museum space, right. Uh, walking into a building that house these amazing pieces of art and, and kind of operating daily in that environment, I, I truly missed. So I was fortunate to, to land this gig at, at, at the Kearney Museum of Art, um, where again, um, they're encouraging experimentation and, and looking at technology in innovative ways and interesting ways that, um, really impact the end user, the visitor or the web, uh, visitor as well. So, (laughs)
1: So can I ask how much you think being in an experimental space, like the mattress factory early on has really shaped the way you look at museums and technology? Uh,
0: I think, I think quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, outside of New York city, so I wasn't a stranger to museums, like the more kind of formal institutional, um, places, but, um, uh, working in a place like the mattress factory where it was more, there was an emphasis on process art, artistic process rather than artistic outcomes. And that translated to the staff. So artistic process, tra- you know, kind of extended to what I was doing in the technology area and it extended to what the membership person was doing there. So, um, and I think it, in my, that, those formative, years of my relationships with, with museums really impacted the way I, I view them today for sure. Um, which kind of leads, leads us to the, t- the, the title of this whole thing, the, the museo punks like, um, Oh, I, I mean, I think some people may be kind of um, confused or wondering where that title comes from. But for me, it's, uh, you know, I, I was a musician for a long time and I played in in punk bands and I really think that, um, you know, it kind of comes to, to the innovation on with limited resources, right? Operating innovatively in an environment, um, to make the most out of your, your resources. And, um, punk bands do that. Artists do that. Museum technologists do that, and it's—I um, I think it, it's an appropriate title for what we're going to be exploring. How about you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I come at it from a slightly different angle in that one of the things I've seemed to find myself doing, although I didn't set out to, is questioning the establishment. Um, it wasn't necessarily intended to be that way because I came to the sector. Um, with quite fresh eyes, having been involved in the music industry and a few other things beforehand, I was just asking a lot of questions quite early on, which it turns out were not always the questions that people asked um, right, if yeah. they've sort of gone through, you know, training in museums or, or those sorts of things initially themselves. Um, so this idea of questioning and working out why we do things, I think, is a really driving thing for me. So not, not quite a um, museum anarchist, I think there are absolutely reasons for doing things, but I want to know what they are. So this idea of questioning the establishment, working out whether the way things have always been done is the way we should continue to do things is something that I'm really driven by.
0: So, um, I have two questions for you. Um, uh, not that this is an interrogation, but, um, number one, why museums? What is it about museums for you that, that, that draws you in? every day to write about, to study, to to work in?
1: Um, there's probably three parts to that answer. The first is really simple. Um, museums are a puzzle. Because they exist as both a concept and a business, like a thing, mm-hmm. we have this this constant tension between this idea of, hey, the museum, anything is possible, but of course not everything is possible in a museum, and particularly when we start to look at individual institutions that have budgetary requirements or they have to meet funders and stakeholder um, Ideas too, so we have this this constant tension, this constant war within the museum as to what it is conceptually and how it actually realizes that role.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but the other thing that I find really interesting about museums is because of that museums can kind of be a space where anything happens. Mm -hmm. You can have an experimental space or you can have an incredibly um, classic museum space and both of them count as a museum and so there's a whole lot of possibility inherent within that and I think that's a really um, addictive and interesting um, and quite fertile space for exploration. Yeah. So I think that's probably... I said three. I think there are three within there.
0: (laughs) Right on. So, and my my second question was: you're you're currently um, studying, uh, uh, pursuing your PhD. Is that right? Yes, that Um, is correct. And so, um, how does that formal education, how does that uh, play with your museo punk side?
1: Well, that's kind of interesting. So, when you were talking about how you came. To be a little bit of a museo punk yourself, I came to museums through fine art. So I'd actually done a creative arts program and in that my theory lecturer would talk about museums as being this place where incredible art happened. Mm. And so I I grew to have this connection to the museum again as this place of possibility. Then once I started working in an art gallery and then studying them more formally, I realized how many restrictions we we place on museums or are placed on museums from the outside. Mm -hmm. So again, there's this constant tension between well how do we meet those those requirements of what we expect from a museum and what we want a museum to do and be um versus how do we actually run this as a space and and live with its history and its legacies because of course museums have been around much longer than any of us they come with history
0: yeah definitely um, and so we're going to be examining over the next couple months and, and we should say that the show, this podcast is going to be a monthly occurrence. Um, and we're going to be examining a lot of, of, of these issues, um, you know, that you just spoke about, um, each, each month and, uh, with many different people who have really great ideas and insights about, um, about those issues. Yeah.
1: I think that's one of the most exciting things is that we get to actually bring other people in on this conversation.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because who wants to, who wants to listen to, to
1: me? (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, um, so for this first episode, we thought, uh, we thought we'd, uh, we'd, we'd, uh, uh, shoot for the moon with our guests and, um, we're, uh, we're, I think we got a really great guest lineup for this episode. You want to clue the audience in?
1: Absolutely. So, our first guest is uh, Michael Edson, who has been doing a lot of work lately around the idea of museums and scale. Now, Mike is the Director of Web and New Media Strategy at the Smithsonian Institution. And... I fell a little bit in love with some of his ideas at the Museum Computer Network Conference in November. Yeah, for where sure. Where he did a slam poetry um, performance on an idea of Jack the Museum. That might and have been the
0: highlight of the conference as far as I'm concerned.
1: Absolutely. He, um, I, I, there's no way I can do this justice, but he basically had... A whole idea of this idea of jacking the museum, but one particular section got great. It was, you know, I do love art. It fills the cart and the quickie mart of my happy heart. The coffee table babble ain't no fable. Dance and music make me stable. To a soul beyond the pale, there's nothing finer than a science centre model whale. But if the whale don't scale, it's a planetary fail. I will rail, we must scale. We can scale, we can move new ideas, cross the seas in the age of scale. So today we wanted to talk about this idea of the museum in the age of scale. Of scale. So obviously, Mike is one of our guests, which is super exciting. The other person we're going to chat to is Paul Rowe. Now, Paul is the CEO of Vernon Systems in New Zealand, and he does a lot of work with small museums. And so we thought that chatting to Mike, who's the Director of Web and New Media at Strategy at the Smithsonian, he maybe had a slightly different perspective coming from such a major institution from someone who comes from um, an area where they're working with a lot of small museums. So we're going to take this idea of the museum in the age of scale and look at it from a couple of ends.
0: Mike Edson is the Smithsonian Institution's Director of Web and New Media Strategy. Uh, Mike has worked on numerous award-winning projects and has been involved in practically every aspect of technology and new media for museums. And in addition to developing the Smithsonian's first web and new media strategy, the Smithsonian Commons concept and the Smithsonian's award-winning web and new media strategy wiki, Mike helped create the Smithsonian's first blog, I Level, and the first alternative reality game to take place in a museum, Ghosts of a Chance. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
3: Absolutely my
0: pleasure. So as a director of web and new media strategy for the Smithsonian, what does that mean? Tell us uh, your average work day and, and the things that you deal with every day.
3: Oh geez, the the well, I I kind of came up through the ranks at the Smithsonian. I've been here 22 years and have worked in a couple of the museums, doing everything from pulling cable and wire closets to to managing teams of workplace technology and web and new media stuff. And since 2008, I've been working in the office of the CIO, just on strategy, Uh, so no operational responsibility most of the time, and my My performance plan is split into three pieces. Uh, One is to be uh, really a researcher and and a thinker and a writer trying to bring in as much expertise and knowledge and thinking as I can into the institution and spread it around amongst our incredible web and new media practitioners. And then part is to be useful to the... 22 museums, no, I'm sorry, 28 museums and research centers plus the zoo. And then also to uh, own and guide and shape and nurture the Smithsonian's technology strategy efforts. And that's a very distributed effort, a lot of people involved, and I'm just one little piece of it.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, Mike, one of the things, one of the ideas that we're really interested in, you've been talking a little bit about museums scaling up, about museums in the age of scale. What, I want to know a little bit more about what you mean and why, why this idea of museums scaling up matters.
3: Well, I think not just museums, but all kinds of uh, mission-driven organizations, especially the old ones and the good ones and the big ones, I think museums and libraries and archives and a lot of public institutions, we, uh, we forged our dreams back in the 20th century when to be successful meant oh, to bring people through the doors, to do publications, to have big collections, uh, to publish a newspaper that people bought every morning, those kinds of things. And a lot of organizations haven't updated their dreams in the Internet age, in the connected age, when it's possible to do the old things we used to do more globally, bigger, faster, and also to completely reimagine what it is we think our job could be. So I'm I'm very interested in in scale and speed as ways to think about how we might be prosecuting our mission now in the 21st century.
0: Right. And I, I look to the recent talk you gave, uh, our museums, a dial that only go to five. Um, that was recent, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I look at that talk and, and I'll put a link to the slide deck in the show notes for this episode. But, um, so, and there's one slide in there that kind of shows the, the, the potential, the web and the internet, um, give museums for kind of this reach this scale. Right. So one of the things though, that, I've been noticing is that leadership traditionally has concerns about growth, about this digital growth and its impact on, say, physical um, bodies through the door or bottom lines. How do you see web scale translating to this kind of real world
2: scale?
3: I think we're I I think we're past that Uh concern. I I think I, I think about five Years ago, six, seven, ten years ago, there was a lot of hand-wringing that the better we were online or the more effort we put online, or even if we put pictures online, it would stop people from coming to the museum. And I don't know any study or even any anecdotal evidence that shows that that's true, and I think there's ample evidence that the exact opposite is true, that the more we do online, the better informed our visitors are, the the more people want to come. And then—
1: it's funny, just on that issue, there was a, a piece in the art newspaper just this week about that museums are feeding an addiction for shows that put works of art and objects at risk and allow visitors no time to reflect, which is almost taking that argument to the opposite extreme <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, um, I think I want more of everything
3: you know I, I want more more people to have more direct encounters with. With you know, more, more museum experiences, I want each of those museum experiences to be more meaningful or to have the potential to be more meaningful. Uh, and I want more people involved online. And I don't just want people, more people involved online as re- passive recipients of a broadcast message. I want that to be a read-write interaction.
0: So how, how do you think you can scale that experience um, to to be that kind of active um... Uh, uh, kind of participatory um, partner, essentially, right? Um, h- how can how can institutions kind of get there?
3: So I think part of the challenge now is, or the first part of the challenge is, uh, back in the old days when we were really all knowledge institutions, mu- memory institutions, we're all broadcast. We used broadcast physics. We used... We used We used broadcast thinking to get our jobs done. We would gather all the smart people and all the smart materials into one place and um, hope that good things happened. And we would define the solutions or define the problems. We would engineer the solutions. We would build the solutions and we would deliver those solutions down a one-way pipe to a passive audience. And now that so many more people can be, involved and can be involved precisely on their own terms. We get to choose where in that value chain we can be effective. So uh, is it more efficient for us to do all that publishing and engineering or to let the people who are already doing it brilliantly do what they do and we play a guide and a supporting role? Um, those That's the kind of thinking that begins to lead you down the path to real global scale.
1: Yeah, although I mean in some ways that's a fairly challenging idea because what? how does that relate to the idea of what a museum is? Because this is starting to change that actual our sense of what museums are then meant to be doing. Keep going. Well, I mean, if you're sort of saying there's, there's a theorist called uh, Tomislav Sola and he talks about um, that the museum only has so much room for innovation because other people, like the audiences don't want museums to innovate. And what you're starting to talk about is museums becoming very different things for their audiences but also for themselves. And I'm kind of interested as to, well, what 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 do we become? Are we still this um, sort of mechanism for for pause and for making? knowledge in making history or, or sort of at least um, maybe not making history, but at least um, considering it in particular ways or, or do we become something else?
3: Well, I think ultimately it's up to the, up to the mission and the director and the stewards of the institution and the trustees of the board to decide that. But my thinking starts with the premise that we live on a planet now that is um, got serious issues <laughs> Um, every time I go to check uh, the web for the current carbon parts per million in the atmosphere, the number 's gone up uh, populations rising uh, one point four billion people live on less than a dollar twenty five a day mm. uh, I think twenty two percent of all mammals are threatened with extinction, sixteen thousand species that we know about mm. uh, there are what is it? 62 armed conflicts in the world. Now uh, we've got a population over, are we pushing 7 billion now or are we over 7 billion? Um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, and globalism um, and that's just dealing with the stuff we know about now. If we start to think about, um, uh, the inevitable progress of technologies and technological innovations that are in the pipeline now, it's likely that 20, 30, 40 years from now, we as a species are going to be presented with a set of ideas and challenges that are little, barely evolved primate brains, (laughs) and the institutions that we've built at the bedrock of our society are just not equipped to deal with. Um, So I'm reading uh, Michio Kaku's The Physics of the Future, and he says that we've basically figured out, science has figured out the four forces that govern the universe, the strong and weak electromagnetic force, uh, the strong and weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity. And you can look at the rest of this century as the inevitable application of force around those forces. So he thinks by the end of the century, we will be uh, reverse engineering extinct species, we'll be mining antimatter uh, asteroids to provide propulsion for nano spaceships that we'll sling out of the uh, solar system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're not very well prepared as a species to deal with the implications of these technologies and the changes in the definition of what it means to be human, and if libraries and museums and archives and other kinds of memory institutions can't step up to the plate, or actually, let me, re, let me rephrase that. They, those institutions need to step up to the plate and be a place for the thoughtful contemplation, the deciphering of these complicated and difficult ideas. So I think it's great if museums all kinds of museums, continue to do the things that they did well over the last 300 years, but society's going to need us to do more or it's going to look somewhere else.
1: Okay, so this is a completely boring question, but who funds this? I mean, it, it's one thing when you are coming from somewhere like the Smithsonian, um, but if you're from a little institution, I mean, is this just for, for big institutions or is this, is this for all of all museums to be contemplating?
3: I think, I think everybody has to stretch. And I don't think uh, there's a lot of um, very good writing and thinking that says it's not necessarily an advantage to be a big institution. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading the, this is very, very strategy geeky, the, the digital strategies for the uh, National Libraries of Scotland who talk about what it means to be a small, smart nation And the intrinsic advantages of focus and agility. Um, That being said, there's a basic value proposition in any size organization, in exchange, in any size museum, library, and archive, uh, in exchange for trust, uh, good real estate, reputation, tax exempt status, public funding, we return some value out back to society that no one else camp or that you can get in no other way and for a long time it was good enough that value proposition was satisfied by being a trusted repository a place to visit um keeping the vaults dry putting one or two percent of my or your collections out online and I think that now we need to do more
0: so what happens if we don't
3: (laughs) Um, there's a, a a fun parlor game you can play. And anytime I go into an organization to do consulting or to listen or to learn, you can do a Google search for the, find out what that organization cares about. And you can do a Google search on those ideas that excludes the organization from the search result set. So it's like, it's like when, um, when, um, Solar scientists study the sun. You some of the tests, the experiments you do. You block out the sun so you can see everything else. Right. So block out your museum or block out my museum and search on the things that people care about. And because it's so easy to start new projects on the internet, because it's so easy to do stuff now, even as opposed to a few years from years ago, um, you start to see what uh, where people are exploiting. The the weaknesses or the things that our big institutions or our, our solid old institutions, big or small, have forgotten to do or haven't yet started to do. So if you look at things like, uh, I mean, everybody points to Wikipedia as the thing that uh, stayed and solid memory institutions could, not only didn't do, but couldn't even believe was possible. Right. So you start to, I think you start to see new new kinds of institutions and new kinds of organizations spring up from whole cloth. I look at, um, open maps, I look at ancestry.com. I look at MOOCs. I look at, um, uh, at these kinds of, uh, global, global by default, internet by default and rapidly moving institutions or organizations as, uh, doing the kinds of things, the work society needs done, but can't get done most of the time, through kind of slow-moving glams.
1: So that's actually, you're talking about all these other institutions, these new types of institutions. Why can't we, or can't we just leave this to the development of new institutions? Like, is it, is it a strange thing to be trying to change the responsibilities and ideas of museums rather than starting something new?
3: Well, I think we get to choose if we want to... Uh, help those kinds of ventures happen or Mm. if we want to get in the way uh, or if we want to be indifferent. And I would argue that strategically uh, if we decide to remain on the sidelines, society will decide to place its bet, its trust somewhere else. I I have no doubt there will be beautiful museums a hundred years from now, um, but unless we're vigorously involved and actually helping people figure out the world, figure out their past, their their present, their future, if we 're helping to build strong, resilient communities directly or indirectly, you know, if we 're not doing those things we 'll be an afterthought and I think the opportunity cost of that is too great. I think that 's an unsatisfying result, and I think ultimately, uh, most of our institutions will many will wither up and dry and die there uh, Clay Shirky said about the newspaper industry there There will be newspaper institutions in the future, just as there are today, but that doesn 't imply continuity and it doesn 't imply continuity on terms previously negotiated
0: mm. right some Some really interesting thoughts you have um, so if somebody if people wanted to find out a more read more or can contact you online where can where can they find you
3: uh, twitter uh, at m p Edson. And there are links from there. And this is all, this Scope, Scale, and Speed is the focus of um, all my kind of personal private time research and writing this year. I'm writing a book uh, loosely titled Let Us Go Boldly Into the Present, Scope, Scale, and Speed in the Connected Age. Awesome. And I'm giving some talks, um, um, giving one of the keynotes at the Glam Wikipedia conference in London next month. Um, a little bit of speaking in Copenhagen and, uh, I'm trying to keep get trying to throw these ideas out there and see what I can learn.
0: Well, that's great. And, uh, we'd love to have you back on when the book is out.
3: <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> but you better not hold your breath. <laughs> <going>. <laughs>
0: All right, Mike, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on the, on the first episode here of, uh, Museo Punks. And, uh, we, uh, we look forward to, uh, following you online. Okay.
3: Likewise, it was really fun
1: to do. Thanks. Okay, so our next next guest today on Museo Punks is Paul Rowe. And Paul joins us from New Zealand where he is CEO of Vernon Systems. And what I think is really interesting about Paul's work is he's done a lot of work working with small museums and getting them... um, to sort of work together online and there's some collaborative projects such as the NZ Museums Projects that I thought Paul might be able to tell us a little bit more about. Paul, can you tell us a bit more about your work, what you do, and also about the NZ Museums Project?
2: Yes, sure. So we're a company that works with museums to help them manage their collection information and now, even more importantly, help them share that information, particularly online online. Uh, NZ museums is a national directory in New Zealand of all the museums in the country so there's 400 museums but it's also a place where people can choose to share highlights or all of their collection content Uh, and so far we've got 100 museums within that community that do that through the website and so that's a project which started way back in 2007 Um, we commissioned a research company to do some um, independent studies for us on small museums, looking particularly at what were the problems that they were facing. And some of the key things that came out of that were that they often didn't have internal IT expertise, so it makes it more complex to implement some solution. Uh, Often the solutions that were already out there were also too complex and too costly. Uh, So we came up with, at that point, a web-based service for them to catalogue their collections and start sharing those online. So that's a product called eHive. Our national museum, Te Papa, decided to build the NZ Museum's website on top of that. So that's become a website now where people take the content from our system and then share them through this one geographical-based community.
0: So, Paul, you mentioned that um, primarily small museums are involved, and you, and you mentioned that uh, you know kind of a one pain point that small museums, when operating um, at digital scale, such as the project you mentioned, may not have an internal IT department. Are there any other um, uh, hurdles or pain points for small museums that you've found in working um, to to um, get them? that prohibit them from kind of really interacting at at web scale?
2: Well, by their nature, they've got a a smallest team of staff, and so that often means they're missing some of the expertise that would be in a bigger institution. Uh, TAPAPA's done some great work helping with that. They've got a department called National Services Te Pairangi that run a whole series of workshops, so things like best practice for managing collections, using opportunities like NZ museums to try and share their content and engage with a bigger community. So it's trying to plug that skills gap, which was also a barrier for those museums, trying to get on the web and trying to reach people which they weren't able to get to before.
1: Yeah, OK. What other, I mean... In terms of, though, their sort of pain points in terms of staffing, are there other things? I mean, obviously, smaller museums will have smaller budgets and things as well. Is it hard for the institutions that you've worked with to prioritise getting online?
2: It is, but I I think the web has levelled the playing field somewhat between the small and the the big institutions, that there's a lot more options now available as to how they tackle tasks within the museum, particularly from a, a software point of view. So there's a whole range of different options, different channels online where they can share content, different solutions for managing key parts of the museum process, and many of those are, are of equal match to things that the larger museums are doing. Uh, I think that in some respects small museums have an advantage in that it's easier to change often, that large museums can have complex organisational structures that are already tightly aligned to a certain goal, and with technology changing so quickly those goals are, are moving sometimes quicker than a large museum can easily keep up with.
0: That was actually going to be my next question. I was I was wondering if there were ways that smaller institutions can can kind of capitalize on on the web and in a way that a, that a large institution can. And you mentioned kind of being flexible and nimble to to bob and weave with the with the wave of the web. Um, are there any other ways? Like, what do you think? Uh, obviously, you're working with diverse institutions, um, b- but are there is there something that a small museum, other than the fact that they're nimble and can kind of adapt to the environment, are, are there assets uh, within the institutions that you think uh, enable them to participate at a at a deeper level online?
2: Yes, I think they are. I think one of the best examples of operating at scale uh, within the cultural sector at the moment is the Trove website which is made by National Library of Australia. Uh, so that's working at a scale which is beyond really what most museums are thinking of. They've got three hundred million records online. They're getting a hundred thousand updates or corrections to their online newspapers. And the reason why that community's grown so big is primarily because they've got a lot of um, rich personal history. So things like birth, deaths and marriage notices, for instance, from papers. And I think that's something that small museums have got that can attract that same kind of community, that they've got very focused content which applies to some very specific community and often has really interesting personal histories, particularly photographic collections. And I think that's a big opportunity for small collections when they put their things online to reach out to that audience and get them working with them, so potentially helping them tag photos or... Um, Using more recent tools for crowdsourcing content around those.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting perspective because, like, we think a lot about, like, oh, Wikipedia is amazing and anyone can be involved, but there's actually not huge amounts of editors doing. Huge amounts of things all the time. There's a a core group of people that are doing things um, that have a real community around Wikipedia, Um, and then it's sort of the long tail of edits beyond that. Um, But why do why do people get involved? They often get involved because something's personal, and I guess that's one of the disadvantages in some ways. Possibly with bigger collections or national collections, is people might not have that personal involvement or that personal perspective around the collection.
2: And and so I think one challenge for small museums is they have a a community that's very connected to their collection, but often that community is quite small and over time gets geographically dispersed so the the challenge is reaching those people and the the web has provided an opportunity to do that Uh, One example that we've worked with is Owaka Museum in the South Island. Now they're in a, a tiny village, it's only 300 people, they've got all the local history records of that small community, but lots of people have lived in that town over the decades and have moved on. Uh, They decided through NZ museums to put their whole collection online, which is about 7,000 records, and at the moment they're getting 75,000 views of those records each year. And that's opened up a whole range of opportunities that they didn't have before. So they've had those images used in films and books uh, in the online encyclopedia of New Zealand. So they're reaching that that community which was connected to the collection but has gradually moved around and the, the web is providing the way to do that.
0: Cool. So, have they, oh, go ahead, Sus.
1: No, oh, I was just going to say, have they actually done um, other things to promote it as well as having it online or is it just the fact that, that it's there?
2: It's just the fact it's there. I mean, they're so small that they haven't have even been able to build a website. There's a, a one-page reference to that museum and the, the local town information website, and that's as far as their web presence goes. Otherwise, all it is is their online collection and a directory page. So just that alone has given the, them this huge new audience.
0: That's pretty amazing, and and one one question that uh, that we asked uh, Mike Edson uh, earlier about um, was whether or not you find resistance to infuse this content on the web, and he seemed to think that at larger institutions that ship has sailed, and people are kind of uh, coming to the notion that you know we need to be online, our content is better with when it's mashed up and mixed with everyone else's content. Do you find that? Um, sentiment to be uh, also within small museums that you've worked with? I mean, are people kind of coming to terms and saying, you know, our content needs to be there, it needs to be accessible, and it needs to be um, structured in a way that it can play nice with other people's data?
2: I would say that small museums generally are more wary still, and they're still Mm. catching up with the idea of putting their content online. Um, I think that's partly due to what their their structure often is, that they're often um, retired volunteers. Uh, Often the boards are made up of of retirees. So it's been a big change over the last decade, and it's a lot to get people's head around that content that they used to carefully manage internally is suddenly going to be in the public eye with with all the mistakes and um, all the potential concerns, such as image theft we're certainly seeing some leaders coming through now within the small museum community that are saying well no there really is a benefit here and we should be doing this and I think one of the changes that's causing that is that a lot of the newer graduates within the museum community start off as interns particularly at small museums and that it's often those interns that are driving the change, they're they're advocating for putting those collections online and changing how those small museums are operating
1: yeah, that's fascinating because, again, it comes down to these sort of personal connections, as if you've got someone there to say, hey, no, this is okay and this is important. It makes it a lot easier, I suppose, to then understand the reasons for doing it. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's right. And, and I think there's more and more clear examples on the web that these things work, more and more blog posts, and things like this podcast come out and they're things that, those people, those, those change makers within the organizations can present to others that are perhaps presenting the, the devil advocate view that these things are worthwhile.
0: And that's, it sounds like really great stuff that you're working on. If, if listeners Paul would like to know more or find you online, um, where can they go?
2: So I'm on Twitter as armchair underscore caver, and then you can go to our company website, vernonsystems.com. Uh, or the product that runs NZ Museums is eHive.com.
0: Wonderful. We'll, uh, we'll also put the links in the show notes uh, to the episode here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and uh, we look forward to uh, following all of this online.
2: Thank you. I look, look forward to hearing your podcast series.
0: All right, Suze, What a what a great first episode! I think we covered um, a lot of ground there, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear such different perspectives from people. You know, from someone like Mike, who's working at what is conceivably the biggest institution in the world, and then someone like Paul, who works with so many small institutions.
0: Yeah, to really compare and contrast those uh, those two voices um, kind of clarified a lot of things for me, and I hope I hope it did for our listeners too. Um, and one thing you know you and i have talked about is is wanting to um incorporate um, a dialogue around these topics uh, you know in between episodes because this is uh, you know a monthly show um, so uh, v- listeners obviously can go to uh, find all the content that we talked about all of the relevant links um, that our guests have mentioned uh, if you go to museopunks.org slash um, zero one that is the uh, the link to uh, this episode and we'll have uh, an opportunity there for people to post comments and And engage around um, the topics that we talked about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting to hear if people come up with different questions and different issues from the ones that we got to explore as well that we can dig into a little bit deeper.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and so also, uh, you know, we welcome feedback, you know, museum, museopunks.org contact. Um, you can get in touch with both Suze and myself. Um, you know, we, we'd love if people rated and reviewed this in iTunes that helps tremendously with discoverability. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think with that, uh, this has been a really great episode. Um, Suze, where can people find you online?
1: People can find me a couple of places on Twitter. My handle is at shineslike, all one word. Um, and the other place is on my blog, which is museumgeek.wordpress.com.
0: Everybody read it because it's awesome.
1: My <laughs> thanks. Well, okay. Where can they find you, Jeffrey? <laughs> uh,
0: I, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at staticmade. I am on app.net at StaticMade and I write about museums and technology and mindfulness at staticmade.com. Um, so
1: we're picking up that your name is static made on the internet.
0: That's it. I am uh, I am static made on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, Suze, thanks. And we'll talk to
1: you next time. Awesome. Looking forward to it.